We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's um, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And in that little intro segment was a a couple of words about uh, fascism, America's enemies being fascists. Well, back in the 1940s, America's enemies were the outside fascists. Now (laughs) we have some domestic fascists, but back then uh, it was uh, Germany and Japan. And, of course, it was the start of World War II on December 7th, 1941, the start for America, that is. It had been going on elsewhere for quite some time. The question may sound familiar. What did the president know, and when did he know it? Of course, this question was famously asked during the Watergate hearings about President Nixon, but it has also come up regarding President Franklin Roosevelt and the attack on Pearl Harbor. December 7, 1941 is a date that continues to live in historical infamy, and it provides a temporal dividing line between the American isolationism that preceded it and the heavy American engagement with the rest of the world that has followed and continues to this day. This engagement, for better or for worse, endures well into the 21st century. Every year, as Pearl Harbor is remembered in early December, it seems charges arise anew that FDR somehow knew in advance of the coming attack on Pearl Harbor and let it happen. Conspiracy, conspiracy theories are always intriguing. Sometimes they're right, oftentimes not. For example, most Americans believe it's just not possible for one lone nut to take down a man so great as our President John Kennedy. Well, as it turns out, it probably was just a lone nut. And a lot of questions remain unanswered about September 11th. Most structural architects have concluded that there's no way it was not a controlled demolition. There's just no way that two planes could have achieved all that uh, happening in uh, lower Manhattan. The speculation that since President Roosevelt had long been trying to stir up America to help our good ally England against the Nazis who had been at war for two years at the time of Pearl Harbor, the logic is certainly there as to why FDR might have welcomed an incident to turn the tide of public opinion toward American involvement in that Second World War. Our guest today, Christopher Kelly, has concluded that as logical as the argument is, FDR did not, in fact, know in advance of the Japanese attack on December 7, 1941. And he says that racism played a part in the belief 
that FDR knew. Christopher Kelly, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Bert, great to be with you today. Well, Christopher Kelly is the author of America Invades, How We're Invaded, We Have Invaded, rather, or Been Militarily Involved with Almost Every Country on Earth which was a 2015 USA Best Book Award winner. He's former chairman of Chiron Corporation and a retired television executive. He's had a lifelong passion for military history. It is fascinating, isn't it? Well, again, thank you for being with us, Christopher Kelly. Tell us about your research, which led you to conclude that the president had no prior knowledge of the attack at Pearl Harbor. Well, I think Bert, that you that you're, you you alluded earlier to the fact that that uh, FDR welcomed the Japanese attack in the sense that it it eliminated the political problem and, and the divisiveness in the country about whether to pursue a policy of isolationism or to be involved in the war because uh, the Japanese attack certainly resolved those issues and and totally unified our country in a way that. It really has almost never been before or since um, in terms of, of political opinion and, and the will to, to fight and, and win the, the war. Uh, so I think that you can say that FDR did welcome, in some sense, the attack because of those, for those reasons. But it's a question is whether he actually knew in advance had what we would call in these days um, a specific and credible uh, evidence of an upcoming attack. And and I think that that the evidence for that is is lacking, uh, even though we're you know over obviously over seven years uh, past the event. Um, and I th- I think you know part of it goes to the fact that that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a man who his first significant job in the U.S. government was Assistant Secretary of the Navy uh, during World War One, uh, much earlier than right. than the events of 1941, and. I would say that the FDR loved the Navy. I mean, that he would never have right. have uh, done anything to deliberately uh, he, uh, 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 destroy it, as as happened uh, much of it on that day. Yeah, yeah, he was that dude, very much committed to that. And you write that, yes, FDR knew in a general sense the Japanese might launch an attack on American military positions somewhere in the wide Pacific. Unquote. Isn't that what most people? have doubts about uh, of the uh, fullness of surprise that they figure that, yeah, he kind of knew anything. I mean, mean, knew something was going to come. I mean, I doubt any conspiracists ever thought FDR had actual knowledge of the day and place of the attack. Right. How do we know that FDR expected some attack? What was going on in the Pacific at the time? Well, of course, there had been a heightening of tensions, and uh, and there had been sanctions that have been imposed by the U.S. in response to Japanese actions, too. I mean, the Japanese were very active in terms of fighting in China at that time. They had the, uh, the, the rape of Nanking, where, you know, you had thousands of Chinese that were killed, uh, civilians as well as, as uh, in the military, in Nanking. And then you'd also have the occupation by the Japanese of what what we think of today as Vietnam, but was it was French Indochina, because France had fallen to the to the Germans in 1940, and their control of Vietnam Indochina was in doubt, and the Japanese had kind of moved into that vacuum. And in response to that, FDR did impose sanctions that restricted the amount of of gasoline and other materials that would, were flowing to Japan, 
so, so there were some harsh sanctions that were being imposed on Japan, mm-hmm. and so uh, there was a possibility that Japan would strike back as a result of that. Um, and but so so, and there was, you know, and they, they knew that, that Japan had a powerful navy and that had that had potential to do damage, and they also. Uh, expected an attack in the in the Philippines as well in different areas across the the wide pacific but but it's a question of you know did he know that they were going to strike on the, on the morning on right. Sunday December 7th in the morning um i that's where i think the uh the evidence is is really is lacking for for any kind of you know specific thing that could have been actionable that where you could have set, had FDR call up and say look guys there's going to be an attack at this time and we need to be prepared for that and the idea that he would know that that was coming specifically that day and the fact that he was, you know, so close to the Navy, right. it, it's, it's just not possible. I wonder what kind of, I mean, aside from, you know, the, the president just wouldn't sacrifice, what, 2,500 lives there. You know, he, he just wouldn't do that. People, I am sure, I can't help but think that people have tried to prove that there was some kind of real signal uh, what kind of research has been done into you know disproving? It's always hard to prove a negative, but how? I, it, exactly. Go ahead. It is very hard to to, to dis- disprove a negative, as just as you point out. I'd also say that I mean the in terms of the the uh, um, if you do a kind of a thought experiment and say, well, oh, okay, well, maybe perhaps you know I'm wrong, and maybe he did know have specific knowledge in advance. Then you have to ask yourself. You know why wouldn't he have at least alerted the Navy to reduce the casualties? You had right. twenty four hundred people, just over twenty four hundred people killed that day uh, at Pearl Harbor. But if he had, let's say, he'd notified uh, Pearl Harbor in advance and warned them, and say you reduced the amount to say twelve hundred, cut it in half. I mean, you still would have had the same political impact in terms of the United States being united behind the president right. in terms of fighting the war, regardless of what the exact number of casualties was. I mean, provided that there was an attack of some kind. Mm-hmm. And so so that, 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 I think, defeats the, the logic of, of saying that, you know, he wouldn't have warned, uh, it, that he, if he had specific knowledge, he wouldn't have warned, because there was, there's no, there was no political uh, upside to not warning, is, is, my, is my point. There. Yeah. And, and I mean, he was a politician, a very, very, very skilled politician. And as we discuss this throughout the next uh, number of minutes, uh, one of the things I want to look at very much is how the unity, you know, what that did and, and how that carries forward of, you know, being against uh, America uniting after we have been attacked and how that plays out in, in the presidential election of 2016, actually. So Imperial Japan back in 1941 was, they were not nice guys. They were in the process of expanding their vast Asian empire. They, they actually, thanks in part to Teddy Roosevelt encouraging them back in the early part of the 20th century that they were the master race of the Pacific when they you know, treated uh, Korea and China as you know, just horribly. So with regard to the attack, two questions. What was their motivation in attacking Pearl Harbor, and what did they hope to achieve? Well, th- uh, their motivation uh, was to directly confront, of course, United States power. I mean, they 
and to destroy the American fleet. Right. Uh, and that was Yamamoto's plan. And he did. He imposed radio silence on the fleet, which is another sure. problem with the whole conspiracy theories, is, yeah. that, is that with the imposition of radio silence, there wasn't stuff to monitor to send back anything that was any, any specific thing that mentioned an attack on Hawaii or something like that. So, uh, so and Yamamoto, you know, really did ha- come up with a brilliant plan. And uh, it was unexpected. I mean, they did, they did not anticipate, uh, the Americans did not anticipate a, an attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, and, of course, there was lots of recrimination after the war about, you know, how did this happen and all of that, mm-hmm. uh, and, and in the immediate aftermath as well. But, the, I mean, they kind of expected attacks on the Philippines. They didn't expect them elsewhere. I mean, I think is, and the, I mean, you have to remember also that the Japanese, for the next five, six months after the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, ran wild in the Pacific. I mean, that they mm. conquered the Philippines as well. You had hundreds of thousands of American troops that were captured in the Philippines, mm. um, it, uh, occupying it, and in a way that that would be almost unthinkable today. I mean, like if you met the modern media landscape, if you had hundreds of thousands of American POWs with their families not having really mm. any knowledge of what's going on with their sons, um, I mean, in the world of, of modern media, I mean, it would be, you know, the Iran hostage crisis times, 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 uh, you know, yeah. 20,000 or so. Yeah. So, um, so it was, it was a, uh, um, it was a, we had staggering losses. And of course, it was not inevitable that we would triumph. I mean, you happen to have, sure. I mean, Midway, of course, which came uh, later on in 19, in 1942, the summer of 42, um, was a dramatic turning point in the war where, where the uh, J- Japanese carriers were sunk um, in the space of about 15 minutes. But that battle could have gone the other way. Yes. And if it had, uh, uh, the United States would have been in a very difficult position to regain the superiority in the Pacific. And we will talk about uh, racist attitudes that played into uh, thinking back then. But... From my, I, I have not specialized in the Second World War, but isolationism, America was in isolationism at the time, and I want to talk about that, but is that part of the reason, my understanding is the Japanese military truly did not think we'd counterattack. How, how is that possible? How, you know, they, they somehow thought that the U.S. wouldn't counterattack after their attack on Pearl Harbor? Can, is there any, what's well, the explanation for that? They thought that it, they could have set up a defensive perimeter that was so strong and with the American Navy crippled that it would be, it would take so long and require such political cost and such sacrifice uh. that the American people would not be willing to do it. I mean, they were, during the Midway attack, they tried and they actually did invade American territory up in the Aleutian Islands and they occupied a couple of small islands in the Aleutian. Mm. And they were trying to, they were, had hoped in Midway to occupy Midway as well, which any imagine if Midway had been, had been invaded properly, you know, successfully and turned into a Japanese air base, that it would have made, you know, a penetration into Japanese territory much more problematic, much more difficult. And they also might have paved the way to an invasion of the Hawaiian Islands as well, which again would have made it much more difficult for the U.S. to make a comeback there. Um, so, and I mean, I think the thing about racism is that racism, uh, I mean, the, if you believe that, that FDR, you know, simply maneuvered the Japanese into the war, what you're 
doing with that is you're 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 denying agency to the Japanese. I mean that the Japanese government has you know its its own uh, response. I mean the Japanese government doesn't do and foreign governments in general don't do everything that they do because of United States and U.S. presidents. Um, they you know they have their own agents reasons for doing what they do and and so and i mean when you had the reporting of the japanese attack after pearl harbor there were still americans and some in the military and others that uh, said that the pilots must be german. i mean that the pilots right. that inflicted this damage on december 7th were german which you know was was ludicrous uh but uh, but i think that that was an example of of uh you know some kind of these racist uh, or some ethnic stereotypes that were behind some of the uh, conspiracy theories and some of the complacency as well that preceded Pearl Harbor. Yeah, they, they, we just assume. I mean, let's let's face it. America, you know, it's still pretty racist now, sadly, terribly. But it was really overtly racist in the 1940s. I mean, blacks couldn't even fight in the same military. I mean, they were the same military, but they had the separate sections. You know, it was not integrated. So racism was very, very overt at the time. And so the I can imagine the shock and surprise. How could these little lesser, you know, yellow-hued uh, people dare to attack the great, you know, white nation right. America? And, and therefore they thought... That's, go ahead. That's right. And, and I was drawing a parallel to, to you know... Uh, 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 conflicts that preceded, uh, long preceded uh, World War II as well. I mean, the Battle of Little Bighorn in Montana in 1876, when Custer's 7th Cavalry was wiped out in Montana by by the Native American tribes. I mean, when the news of that first spread, American media, which of course meant newspapers, yeah. uh, was in, reacted in, in shock disbelief. I mean, that they, they couldn't fathom the idea of a Union uh, uh, hero from the Civil War being wiped out by a force made up of Native Americans, but that in fact was what what happened, and so so I think you had you know you had uh, obviously that was a you know had, had racial uh, connotations and uh, was interpreted in, in and there also was this underestimation of the enemy based on ethnic stereotypes at at Little Bighorn and mm-hmm. at uh, um, and at uh, Pearl Harbor as well. Uh, and you could also argue, I think, that some of the the truth or conspiracy theories of 9/11, uh, ones that suggest that that you know 19 suicide hijackers couldn't possibly, mostly from Saudi Arabia, couldn't possibly have brought down the buildings, you know, have, may have some some a, a racial root to that uh, theory as well. Hmm. Interesting, and there was certainly, I mean. I, I read a wonderful book called uh, The Imperial Cruise about uh, Teddy Roosevelt and the Philippines. And some of the uh, political cartoons back then were incredibly racist. They had uh, some American uh, uh, hero uh, scrubbing a little uh, look like an African-American. They didn't even know. They just knew that the Filipinos were different looking and bringing culture to them, bringing the cleanliness of Western civilization. And they and they those dark people had a hard time accepting that. And I mean, you know, let's face it. I mean, Vietnam, it was widely assumed the U.S. had tremendously we were tremendously overpowering in our military strength, unquestioned yeah. superiority. So, of course, we would beat the, the little you know, inferior Vietnamese. 
but we were beaten by them. We, in fact, lost to them. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the role of racist assumptions in that war as well. Well, I think that there, you know, there are, were are racist assumptions uh, operating to some extent in Vietnam as well. Of course, I mean that the the Vietnamese had a remarkable determination in fighting this. Yes. War that lasted, uh, you know, ten years for the Americans, but then had, you know, many many years before that against the French as well. So really, a war that lasted for them, you know, from the at least the 1940s on through to into the 70s for you know a period of 30 years. Yeah. Um, so so yes, there there I think there were some assumptions made. I think that that is it's a it's a classic mistake to underestimate your opponent yeah. based upon ethnic stereotypes. Um, and sometimes it's a catastrophic mistake, um, as it was with Pearl Harbor, with with uh, Little Bighorn, and uh, with 9-11, too, arguably. Yeah, and Vietnam was pretty catastrophic as well. 58,000 Americans lost their lives. Who knows how many good Americans lost their limbs? And uh, it's just... It was terribly catastrophic. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest today, Christopher Kelly, military historian, author of America Invades, How We've Invaded or Been Militarily Involved with Almost Every Country on Earth. We're talking about December 7th, 1941. What did the president know? When did he know it? And, and we pretty much concluded that uh, there was some sense that Japan was going to attack somewhere, but... Certainly, there was no actual prior knowledge. Now, in 1941, uh, you know, the U.S., the, the war had been going on for many people since like 1938. I mean, for the you know, Chinese, 1937. Uh, in, That's right. In, in, in Europe, uh, with, with the horrible, horrible, unbelievable rape of Nanking. But U.S. came late, I'm guessing, largely because of our experience in the First World War. After it was over... I think, I can't imagine many people not wondering if it had been the right decision to send our boys over there. What do we know about the depth and breadth of isolationism after that experience, uh, that, you know, the horrible experience from First World War, and how that played into reluctance to, uh, to get involved in World War II? Uh, yes, well, it was interesting what you were saying about how early the war started in China, which of course is true, and that the war World War II started not in 1939 but in 1937 in China. And uh, one thing that we uncovered in doing the research for our book is Arthur Chin um, uh, is is uh, not as well known as perhaps he deserves. He was the very first American ace of World War One, uh, fighter ace of World War One. Hmm. And the definition of a fighter ace is you have to have shot down five enemy planes. And Arthur Chin was half Chinese, half Peruvian. His mother was Peruvian and mm. born in, in Oregon. And he uh, shot down Japanese planes while uh, fighting in the uh, Nationalist Air Force. Uh-huh. So, so even though he was, he was American, he, was, uh, he, he earned that, uh, that badge, uh, so to speak, becoming the first American ace uh, by, by, fight, by participating in the war early and on the, on the side of the Chinese uh, as a volunteer. Um, but he was an American as well. So, but we haven't heard of of him largely because 
of his uh, different uh, race. Uh, how typical, how typical. And how many, you know, had heard of the, uh, the, the red tails, the uh, buffalo soldiers and things like that. It was a pretty racist time, no question about it. But we were pretty isolated, or into isolationism. There was a lot of reluctance. I mean, in 1936, there was the Spanish Civil War, which the Nation magazine wrote an article about, and the headline of the article was, A Second World War? Unquote. And there were lots of requests by the legitimate government of Spain for help against the military uprising and uh, invasion from Spanish Morocco. Uh, Many feel that had we intervened on behalf of the Republicans in Spain, Hitler would have gotten a message that America will use its military force when necessary to defend freedom. And instead of by, by us staying out, Hitler was encouraged to take over all of Europe. Eleanor Roosevelt pushed for her husband to help Spain. Any idea why he resisted? Was it, as we've discussed, you know, after World War One, there was a great, strong feeling of isolationism. Uh, I have to think it was purely for domestic political purposes why he may have stayed out of the Spanish Civil War when it could have given Hitler a heck of a message that we were going to stand and fight. Right. I mean, the Spanish Civil War is a very interesting conflict. It was uh, kind of the the warm-up round for World War II, of course, yes. I mean, where you did have Axis forces against, uh, I mean, certainly uh, Germans and Italians supporting, again, in intervening in Spain uh, with the Soviets on the other side and Stalin on the other side, and with the kind of Western democracies not directly getting involved, but nevertheless, there were a number of volunteer groups that that went in. The, yes. the Lincoln Brigade, Abraham Lincoln Brigade, uh, were American uh, volunteers that fought on the Republican side. There was a gentleman, used to talk about racism, there was a gentleman uh, by the name of, of Oliver Law. He was the yes. first, and he was, the, I don't know if you're familiar with him or not. Oh, I am. But he was the, the very first American, uh, black Amer- African-American to uh, have overall command, uh, command of American forces, and he was the commander of the um, uh, Lincoln Brigade. Briefly, I mean, he was uh, unfortunately killed about a couple, really, I think, less than a week after having been uh, assuming command of that organization. But And he was a former uh, taxi cab driver from Chicago, and mm. uh, also a uh, communist member as well, which of whom there were many at that time. Sure. And, uh, and he, uh, but he volunteered and was, uh, was uh, killed in the Spanish Spanish uh, Civil War, the 30s. Uh, but, but, but the U.S., do you think that FDR, and we are talking about FDR and his motivations, he, I wonder if he wanted to but felt like he just couldn't do it. I mean, you know, even trying to defend England was really, really hard to get Americans to go along with that because of so much isolationism, which I can't help but think came after our horrible experience in, in the First World War. I wonder how political his reasons may have been for staying out of the Spanish Civil War. I mean, maybe he really didn't care. We know Eleanor did care. Well, there certainly was a revulsion after the First World War. I mean, that, that yeah. was the most, you know, hideous war in, in historic memory up to that time, up until World War II, of course, uh, when you had the trench warfare, this this kind of static warfare on the Western Front. You had the use of poison gas, which, I mean, that wasn't oh. even done again until very much in World War II. I mean, even Hitler didn't resort to to poison gas and had the sense to avoid that. But they did use poison gas really on, on all sides in, uh, in the First World War. So there was a revulsion 
about uh, in, after World War One, which was not just American, but you know was widespread among yeah. all over Europe. At this kind of lost generation of mm-hmm. people, I mean, you see it in the in the uh, I mean things like F. Scott Fitzgerald and the Great Gatsby and Hemingway and all the rest, of, and you see see it in in fiction and movies and all kinds of different ways. It's it's manifested. Um, even the coins at the time, the silver dollars and the, the peace dollars, uh, with the, uh, that were uh, were minted at that time, trying to you know to show this kind of movement away from war in the twenties that that you had. Yeah, interesting. And there was a whole America First movement in resistance to getting involved in uh, the Second World War. Uh, nativists who, you know, were were believing that that we. That you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant America was some superior nation that we shouldn't get involved with Japan, with Germany, and uh, kind of right wing, which you know a lot of that frankly lines up today. Uh, you know, this, there is a racism that's assumed about a lot of our enemies. Uh, you know, that like for example, all Muslims. You know, but it's not at all true. Most most Muslims are the greatest victims of ISIS. More more Muslims are dying from ISIS than any other uh, uh, ethnic group. You know, that that's simply a fact. But there is some racism involved in there. Isolationism was a complicated thing. I mean, that uh, I mean, there was in American history. There's been this kind of I think this ambivalence about warfare, about the nature of warfare. I mean, yes. you had a country that was founded. Uh, by some many extremely religious people, uh, many of them Quakers and and uh, people who were pacifists to begin with, and many of these uh, the uh, the founders of our country also were people who had fled from a Europe that seemed to be constantly embroiled in in wars, and so the whole continent of Europe seemed to be engaged in in almost a constant yeah, true. state of civil war, and so hmm. you had Americans who you know deeply you know, craved peace, and yet at the same time. Uh, America was born through a violent struggle. You had to have fight a war with uh, with the British in the American Revolution, and you had to fight wars with the Native Americans to expand the country uh, geographically westward. And you had to fight a war with the Mexicans. I mean, Mexican American War with yeah. uh, Polk um, to you know add states that became states such as California, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, etc. to the Union. So, so we had a country that was forged by war, but also uh, was populated by many people who were profoundly anti-war. Yeah. You had this, I, have, I think there's been this kind of tension, you know, kind of all through American, mm-hmm. uh, American history of, of, you know, the relationship to war. Yeah, there certainly has been. That's an interesting point. I think there's some changes in there. And one of the interesting things uh, you wrote about uh, what did, you know, did President uh, Roosevelt know, and clearly he didn't know exactly, uh, you wrote that the Japanese attack was, quote, a great folly, unquote. Now, when I think of the term folly, I think of historian uh, Barbara Tuckman wrote a grand book called The March of Folly, in which she defines right. folly as an action taken by a government when it was aware at the time of the risks of that action and that there was a clear practical alternative readily available, and yet they do it anyway. Does this definition of folly fit your definition? In other words, did the Japanese, given the Japanese determination to build its empire, might there have been a better alternative for them than to attack Pearl Harbor? In what ways was it a great folly? Well, I think that in hindsight, for the Japanese, it clearly was. I mean, that there there was an alternative to 
to launching an attack on Pearl Harbor and to uh, opening up this war with the Americans. Um, and I mean, obviously, the consequences of it were were yeah. tragic and disastrous for the Japanese. I mean, leading to Hiroshima and Nagasaki and complete defeat. Uh, but it was it was possible to. And there were attempts made to negotiate. There was, I mean, you. The problem was that you had a, a coup that went on in the Japanese government. That um, mm. and the hardliners won. And the hardliners who were war hawks and the and the especially the party of the there were there were divisions in the Japanese between the the army party and the navy party. The navy mm. party was more open towards um, negotiation and and some you know steps short of war. And the and the uh, army was convinced that they had to uh, hold on to their position in China at all costs, which meant that they felt that they had to attack the United States mm. uh, in order to preserve that position. So, so I mean, I think that this does meet Tuckman's definition of being that there was a possibility, and there were people in the Japanese government who were strenuously opposed, and even Yamamoto himself, even though he conceived the plan, clearly had enormous reservations about about actually implementing it and what the consequences would be for Japan and the world. Yeah, oh, unbelievable. And wow, <laughs> these little things in history. I mean, I, I certainly didn't know that there was that division in Japan, but that's very, uh, sheds a lot of light on it. Now, and of course, December 7th, 1941 marked a major historical change. As you write, quote, it provides a temporal dividing line between the American isolationism that preceded it and the American engagement with the rest of the world that followed. This engagement, for better or worse, endures into the 21st century, unquote. Now, again, before that day of infamy, the world knew the U.S. would not intervene. And I wonder if we could talk about some of those ways this engagement, for better or worse, endures. We're now fighting ISIS, among others, which is a very long way from the homeland, and for many years, we've been fighting Al-Qaeda. Our war with Afghanistan has gone on nearly 14 years, and we are not winning. The war with Iraq has clearly been a disaster, which helped create ISIS. Can, can you relate our current vast wars with the change that happened on that day, December, 20, uh, December 7th, 1941? Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I was on a book tour recently, and I, I stopped by the, uh, the Hoover Library in Iowa, uh-huh. and, and I was, I was inter- fascinated to, to learn a little bit more about Herbert Hoover, who, of course, had opposed FDR in 1932 and had mm-hmm. lost, yeah. uh, famously lost, and, and, of course, Hoover is identified with the Depression and Hoovervilles and right. all the rest of it, uh, but he, I mean, if you go back and you try to look at, at uh, not necessarily isolationist, but if you say if you use the term non-interventionist, I mean, who was the last non-interventionist president in U.S. history? I think the answer is pretty much Herbert Hoover. Hmm. I mean that. I mean since since and the really the dividing line is uh, you know as I mentioned in the article is December seventh, nineteen forty one. You haven't had a single president since nineteen forty one who has said, no, we really do need to retreat back into um, our own world and not be engaged with 
the rest of the world economically, in terms of diplomatically, in terms of the military, etc. I mean that that no no president since has said that. Now Hoover, on the other hand, actually, I mean, he was elected president in 1928, and if you look in our book America Invades, you'll find that there are no Hoover invasions. I mean, the only the thing that Hoover did is he withdrew troops from Nicaragua, Marines out of Nicaragua and Central America, and tried to. Institute basically a good neighbor policy uh, with Latin America, which had been preceded by many years of, of intervention yeah. with you know send in the Marines and all of that. Yeah. So I mean Hoover was consistently not only advocating non-intervention, but but actually acting upon it as well. But uh, but he's the last the last guy who would be in the in the in a in a consistent non-interventionist camp. I would say, which is just kind of a, a startling. I mean, in terms of, of there having really been this dividing line, and I think the dividing line, you could say, was created by, by Pearl Harbor and the reaction to it. And even Hoover, had to, even though he was not an interventionist, had to become a, a patriot and support the war after, after December 7th, of course. Yeah, interesting. There was, like, no choice, really. Now, there has been, I, I will say that uh, President Kennedy was certainly not a non-interventionist, not by any stretch of imagination. I mean, he was pretty aggressive with regard to Cuba, which was a little bit dangerous, I think. But he also had the Alliance for Progress, which I thought sent a very good message to Central and South America. And Jimmy Carter was not a non-interventionist either, but he did have the wisdom to stay out of Nicaragua for a short time. And then, of course, Reagan got in and <laughs> messed that one all up. Now, Christopher Kelly, you wrote a book called America Invades, How We've Invaded or Been Militarily Involved with Almost Every Country on Earth. In 1898, we waged what appears to be an imperial and astoundingly racist war against the Philippines in the earliest 20th century. There were those who very much wanted us to invade Cuba and own it. Yet, many of America's founders specifically spoke against such foreign entanglements. And, you know, again, Herbert Hoover, I went to that museum, too, actually, in Iowa, and, and he, he's gotten to raw into the, the stick. He's, he was a lot better president than he got credit for. I mean, the Hoover rails were really not his fault, uh, and he, he did a lot. He actually did. I encourage people to read about Hoover. But many of America's founders, as I said, spoke against foreign entanglements. What has the effect of this imperialism been on real American power, economic uh, strength, our position in the world as we participate in the world. W what's your analysis of how this, you know, militarily involvement everywhere, how has it affected our actual power in the world, do you think, Christopher? Um, how has it affected our power in the world? I mean, I think it's, it's, it was, I mean, we were, I mean, I have a, a co-author who's English who wrote a book called All the Countries We've Invaded. Uh, and he wrote in that book about how Britain invaded 90% of all the countries in the world over the course of their history. And I reviewed his book and enjoyed his book. And uh, together we uh, met, and, I, and as an American, I was curious to see how Americans compare to Britain, and which is why we wrote the book America Invades. How we've, uh, and we found that we have been, we have either invaded or been militarily involved with almost every country on earth. I mean, that we haven't invaded as much as Britain. It's about 44%, uh, but that we've fought in. But we uh, have uh, military bases and military involvements in almost every country on earth. If you take Portugal, for example, we've had, we haven't invaded Portugal, but we've had bases in the Azores since World War II to fight the Nazis, and they're still there to this day. 
I mean, that recently when you had Spencer Stone who of the U.S. Air Force, who was involved in, a, in, in foiling a terrorist incident in, back in August of this year, uh, he, he was a Air Force guy who had been based in the Azores, for example. So, I mean, not all military involvements are negative, uh, shall we say. I mean, that, that I mean, the Portuguese clearly, you know, want those bases and they want to, to maintain employment on the Azores and so forth. Um, but, but the but what I think was astonishing for us was was that that there are so few places that have not been touched. The only three countries we were able to identify that have had no American involvement were are actually Andorra, Bhutan, and Liechtenstein. Hmm. Uh, so, so those so. You have to go very far indeed to find a country that America has not had really some some uh, significant military involvement with. Well, I guess it's it's you know as as has been said so many times when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and that you know largely seems to have been the case since December seventh, nineteen forty one. And and you talk about okay, the Brits invaded more countries than we have, and what a price they have paid! Wow. <laughs> Of course, I <laughs> yes, yeah, yes, and it, and also the you know the way that uh, their empire has has, totally has collapsed. you know it collapsed completely, and and now you have immigration, and you have I mean they have a completely different uh, unexpected unintended consequences of empire, so to speak, in uh, hmm. in the UK today. So and but I mean in Cuba, you mentioned Cuba. I mean yeah. that I mean even John Quincy Adams, uh, who was Secretary of State, is also president. He said that if an apple severed by the tempest from its native tree cannot choose but fall to the ground, Cuba forcibly disjoined from its unnatural connection with Spain and incapable of self-support can only gravitate towards the North American Union. I mean, so, I mean, here he was predicting that Cuba would fall into the laps of America, so to speak. Um, you know, I mean, long before. So, I mean, you've had this kind of and then, in, as you mentioned, in the Spanish-American War, yes. yes, we did fight in Cuba, and you had Teddy Roosevelt at the Rough Riders in San Juan Hill, and and uh, and, and that was that war led to the addition of Puerto Rico, and of course, uh, conquest of the Philippines as well. Um, and, and I mean, it was really the imperial heyday of of uh, or the heyday of imperialism, not just American, but but European and worldwide. Well, that's true, and one of the things about the the Philippines and the Spanish-American War is the Filipinos welcomed the U.S. to help them get rid of their uh, master, Spain. I don't think they expected the U.S. to become the new occupying force there that, that we became. They wanted, they believed, I mean, like what I believed as a kid growing up in the 50s, that America was the good guy, that we were for freedom and for allowing countries to govern themselves and respect people. And, and to think that, you know, these, these little countries, oh, they can't possibly govern themselves. We, we have to show them the way. And the price that we have paid, you know, I can't help but think that, you know, all over Latin America, Central America, you know, our involvement in El Salvador, our support for terrible dictators in, in Chile, uh, you know, throughout uh, Latin and Central America, the various coups, you know, in Guatemala uh, for bananas. It's just... I don't think that's helped American power particularly, and yet we keep right. on doing it. Well, I mean, the Philippines, clearly we had an invasion in 1898 with the Spanish-American War when we went in. But there was also, uh, I just remind you, there was another invasion of the Philippines, which was actually in 44-45, which was uh, when MacArthur returned oh, to the Philippines, which was a liberation from the Japanese occupation. True. So in a sense, you could score that as 
two invasions of the Philippines, two American invasions of the Philippines, one of which was a liberation, one of which was uh, a con- was, was definitely was not. Yeah. So, and and that's you know that that case of the Philippines could be generalized to I mean that you know many of our invasions have been liberations. I mean, obviously D Day and and Normandy and and yes. uh, no question things like the Philippines and things like that. But then uh, some of them, of course, have not been so. Yeah, that's a good point. Like a mixed bag. Uh, definitely a mixed bag. You're right. Sometimes the hammer is the right tool. Sometimes it's not. And, <laughs> boy, we have paid a very high price in terms— I mean, I, I have wondered when uh, Evo Morales was elected president of Bolivia, at the time I, I asked uh, my guest, whom I forget, would that leftist been elected had it not been for George W. Bush? She said, well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it just is so counterproductive again and again and again. But sometimes, yeah, you're right. We got right. to, I mean, the Nazis were not good guys. We had to defend ourselves and, and the freedom of Europe uh, clearly was the case. And, and, you know, going to war with Japan was obviously the right thing to do. But one of the effects, uh, we're going to talk about long term now, of the attack on Pearl Harbor was that it created rather instantly a political unanimity that... Yeah, I mean, I can remember after we were attacked on September 11th, everybody's flying American flags. There was terrific unanimity, and right. the world was totally sympathetic. They were all saying, yeah, we are all Americans. Every American, no matter what ethnic background or region of the country, back on December 7th, 1941, everyone, everyone got behind the war effort. Of course, this didn't happen in Vietnam, and it sure isn't there on our adventures in Afghanistan and Iraq and now Syria. But I noted in the 2014 elections, and I see a lot of it in the 2016 election, uh, which is going on, politicians grab onto new outside threats as a way to bring unity behind their campaign. For example, in 2014, we saw Republicans try to manipulate fear for their political gains, specifically political candidates of the right, and I can't call them conservatives because they're just right-wing, political candidates of the right sought to focus our attention strictly on the combined threat of ISIS, Ebola, and immigrants. And they would say that just quickly, ISIS, Ebola, immigrants. It's all one thing. It's them out there. They're the threat to us. Now presidential candidates find it useful to talk about these current threats intending it seems to me, to divert attention from real domestic issues like our political system, which is rigged toward the super-rich, and we have a little bit of a problem with guns, I think. Uh, The government that is owned by the big corporations, the lack of universal health care, and the like, focusing on outside threats seems to be great politics. And we've seen uh, ads by uh, many Republican candidates not talking about any domestic issues, but talking about the bad guys out there, those other people. My guess is this really did not occur before December 7th, 1941. Your thoughts, Christopher Kelly? Well, I think that World War II was really an an exceptional war in many, many ways. I mean, not only it was the most costly war in human history, uh, and it was a war that, as you say, unified our country politically in a way that, we have never experienced before or since. I mean that. I mean, you go back through the long, you know, uh, skein of, of American history, and most wars. I mean, from the War of 1812 to the Mexican-American War to 
to you know more recent, much more recent conflicts, have had political opposition. They've had support for the war, hawk, hawkish parties uh, supporting the war, and others not. I mean, in, in the War of 1812, you had most of New England oppose the war against England because England was the big trading partner. And the governor of Massachusetts, I mean, even tried, his name was Caleb Strong, to uh, negotiate a separate peace with Canada uh, at the time, which, you know, you, you would consider treason today. Hmm. Uh, but uh, so, so you had, and, and you also had trading going on. At the same time, we were fighting the War of 1812. Uh, New England farmers were selling cattle to the uh, British uh, military, to the, you know, have, have a Royal Navy fleet uh, stop in Massachusetts or somewhere, and they would they'd sell sell them products uh, to the other side so so i mean my point is that is that uh, opposition and support of and having wars be politicized is the is the rule and world war 2 is really kind of the exception in that regard uh where where there was it was not possible to be you know um uh, in the, in a peace party during world war 2 because you would be perceived as supporting hitler and tojo yeah. so which was, uh, you know, would be unacceptable. Um, but the the other thing, I just, I mean, our, our most recent book um, is, uh, and I don't know, is, is Italy Invades, How Italians Conquered the World. And there is actually a surprising Italian connection to Pearl Harbor, uh, which which many people are, are unaware of. But but there was, the, the year, in less than a year before Pearl Harbor, there was the Battle of Toronto. Never heard of it. Mediterranean. Okay. And that was... When the the British, this is in November 11th and 12th of 1940, the British attacked um, an Italian fleet <coughs> in Toronto, which is near the the uh, heel of Italy, uh-huh. and you had Japanese agents who were uh, based in Europe who were observing the effects of that, and it was Toronto that became the blueprint for Pearl Harbor for oh. the Pearl Harbor attack. Uh, so. So, I mean, I just thought there was kind of an interesting, uh, you know, and maybe surprising connection uh, between um, what was a really a crushing defeat for the Italians. I mean, the British, I mean, destroy, I mean, really destroyed a good chunk of the Italian fleet in, in the space of, of, a, of a few hours. Um, and uh, this, this connection to, to Pearl Harbor that came up, of course, less, uh, about a year later. Fascinating. There's always so much more to history that, I mean, you know, I, I've looked at history a fair amount as listeners to the show know, but there's, I feel like there's like, for every two or three things I know, there's like a hundred things I'd love to learn about. Uh, maybe not everybody, but you can learn from history. It affects us very much, as we can see, hopefully, from the incredible historic change of December 7th, 1941. It affects us to this day. No question about that. And, uh, Again, in in part of the, as an outgrowth of the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, which has fascinating history from the Japanese learning from what the Brits did. That's that's just incredible. Are we today, do you think, Christopher Kelly, so knee-jerk reactive that America now sees many, many problems as requiring a military solution that maybe there's actually not a military solution. Do you think that, one, is that the case? And two, do you think that's starting to change? Well, I mean, the thing is that, I mean, one of the lessons of Pearl Harbor is that, of course, is that there really are outside dangers uh, and that the world is a dangerous place and that, you know, sometimes there are 
attacks from the outside, and and Pearl Harbor, of course, was one of these, and uh, 9/11 another one. So, so you, I mean, I think that would would argue that that uh, you know preparedness is essential for, I mean, for defense of the of the country because because there will be outside threats. We don't know exactly what they're going to be, uh, and but we have to be careful to not underestimate uh, where uh, where they're coming from and the the way that um i mean a very small number of people these days can do an enormous amount of damage mm-hmm. as you know as testified by uh, 9/11 of course Paris, uh, but even yeah. with uh even with um, D- december 7th was it was a, a relatively small i mean like mm-hmm. and technologically i mean the zero fighter was not the most advanced plane available uh in the world at that time, but it did a heck of a lot of damage, uh, and so I mean, it, it later was kind of outclassed by American planes and aviation and so forth. But you know, nevertheless, they were able to do an enormous amount of damage on December seventh, and of course, um, the Al Qaeda was able to do an enormous amount of damage on nine eleven too. So, so, but then again, you know, with, with the U.S. seeing after our victory in the Second World War. I mean, for a long time, there was that whole Cold War where the two superpowers, the Soviet Union and the U.S., now we are the yeah. superpower. That's it. We are tremendously powerful and just huge, huge right. military superiority over everybody. I, it, it, I, I wonder sometimes if that's applied first when it should be perhaps a kind of a last resort. I mean, looking at, at right. Syria and Iraq— we went in there under George W. Bush. It, it was a lie for sure. But look what it, it seems to have resulted in the creation of ISIS, which is a much, much harder threat than ever existed before. So our military intervention there and in other places hasn't always served our interest. As a military historian I, you know, and patriot, I would think you would you know, I'd love, welcome your comments on that. Well, I think it's a fascinating period that we're in right now. I mean, where you have enormous dangers, and you have, uh, and I think when you try to do an, an analogies, I mean, I, I don't know how much right. these hold up or not. But between World War II and what's going on in the Middle East today, I mean, the, and for me, one of the big questions out there is, and I don't know the answer to it, but the question mm-hmm. is, is it like World War II when is ISIS like Hitler and the Nazis? And you know, during at, at that point. Uh, Churchill and FDR were not only willing, but were uh, you know uh, eager to ally ourselves with Stalin and the Soviet communism, and and that I mean of course that I mean four out of five German soldiers died on the Eastern Front, and hmm. you know so the Soviets and the Soviets lost over twenty million people hmm. in that hmm. Titanic struggle, and so the question is, okay, I would say that Putin is. He's not as evil as Stalin. I mean, he's, I don't think he's a good guy, but I don't think he's as in the same league as Stalin was. And so, do you do you ally yourself with the 21st century equivalent of Stalin, Putin, uh, in order to overcome the 21st century version of of Hitler? Um, I, I just ask the question. I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, very, very good question. You know, it, it, it seems that uh, us, well, you know, trying to overthrow Assad is kind of getting in the way of the real fight. I think most Americans really want to fight ISIS. I mean, really want right. to fight ISIS. And, I mean, Assad obviously is not 
a good buddy. You know, he's not he's he's a nasty guy. Right. But as you say, so was Stalin. But Stalin helped us beat the Germans. Final question. Again, thank you. It's been very, very interesting, Christopher Kelly. Do you think Americans are waking up to the possibility that perhaps we've intervened, you know, the fact that we've intervened in nearly every country and results are iffy at best in terms of our national security? Do you think uh, Americans are are starting to get that uh, maybe we shouldn't be uh, intervening everywhere? Let's see. I, th- I think there is, and there is a non-intervention streak through American history of desire for peace. I think we are constantly hoping for peace, and uh, would rather be, you know, uh, engaged in in peaceful pursuits. But at the same time, we have this sense that we need to be prepared for the worst as well. Um, the uh, I mean, the, we need to do it. I mean, the whole F. World War II point is FDR. I mean, during uh, during World War II, FDR had many conferences with Churchill and with Stalin and so forth. Yes. I mean, there was a conference in Tehran where where FDR was mixing cocktails for Stalin and uh, and Churchill. And I mean, th- there was a relationship between FDR between our president and 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 Joseph Stalin, yeah. uh, who was who was not a good man. I mean, I, I mean, no. uh, and and yet, and that was a pragmatic. A relationship uh, designed to to deal with the necessities of the time of of, of destroying fascism and and the Japanese, uh, and it was successful. And so, but there doesn't seem to be that kind of relationship between Obama and Putin today, yes, for, for example. Sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it's a completely different uh, situation, and, and uh, some maybe uh, perhaps unfortunately. Well, we will see. Fascinating discussion. Uh, military historian Christopher Kelly author of America Invades, How We've Invaded or Been Militarily Involved with Almost Every Country on Earth. Hopefully, we can learn from history. Every now and then, we do. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks very much, Bert. And thank you for listening. All hail the Mr. Roosevelt, you're the hero of the hour. We sent you on to Washington, bestowed on you full power. This country is a vast domain, it's the finest spot on earth. We've worked and struggled, fought and won every conflict since our birth. On the victory, Mr. Roosevelt will need one mighty strong. Now that you're our president, we know it won't be long. Till folks are happy once again, you're singing this glad song. Mr. Roosevelt, we're back of you, 120 million strong. So cut expense, tear down defense between supply and demand. Put folks to work, don't let them shirk, let farmers keep their land. They don't need cash to cut a dash, there's faith in those we trust. And when they say that they will pay, they will not go and bust. On the victory, Mr. Roosevelt will need one mighty strong. Now that you're our president, we know it won't be long. Tell folks are happy once again, singing this glad song. Mr. Roosevelt went back and view 120 million strong. Onward, noble president, we have our faith in you. When we see your smiling face, we never can be blue. Smile and pray, work hard each day, and soon things will be bright. The sun will shine, we'll all feel fine, everything will be alright. On the victory, Mr. Roosevelt will need one mighty strong. Now that you're our president, oh, we know it won't be long. So folks are happy once again, singing this glad song. Mr. Roosevelt, we're back of you, 120 million strong. 
Let's look into the future now, many years from today. There'll be another president to help us on our way. A younger man with darker skin will soon be called upon. And history will repeat itself and folks will sing this song. On the victory, Mr. Obama will lead one mighty strong. Now that you're our president, we know it won't be long till folks are happy. Singing his glad song Mr. Obama went back a few 300 million strong Mr. Obama went back a few 300 million strong uh, Mr. Roosevelt Loudon Wainwright III